0: Good morning. Good morning. Before we pray and begin, I would like to take a personal moment simply to thank everyone in here and everyone out there for the gift of the prayer book on the occasion of my pastoral installation two Sundays ago. Uh, It is a magnificent gift. The prayers, the blessings, the sentiments uh, that you wrote and that are contained therein are simply extraordinary. So I can never thank you enough. It is my honor to be your pastor. I'm humbled and grateful uh, to have been called here, and I look forward to all that is to come. We love you, man. I love you, too. Let us pray in a spirit of love. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we thank you for the spirit of love. We thank you for the gift of each other. We thank you for this time together to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you simply for waking us up this morning in our right minds and providing us with all the blessings that we need to get by and even prosper. Uh, We lay claim and lay hold now to your promise in Scripture, which says, As the rain and the snow fall from heaven and do not return there, but rather water the ground, causing it to sprout forth and grow, so shall your word be, which comes down on us from on high. It never ever returns to you empty or void, but it always accomplishes that which you purpose and prospers in the very thing for which you sent it. Speak now, Lord, for thy servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our gospel lesson for today is Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. My sermon title for today is... Called from verses 22 and 27, and that is astonishing teaching, astonishing teaching. This brief section of text we have before us this morning from the earliest written of the four Gospels concerns Jesus' first miracle. In rapid order here in Mark, Jesus has been baptized and tempted and then begun preaching and called his first disciples. Specifically, at this point, Peter and Andrew, James and John. And now he performs his first miracle. In Matthew's gospel, his first recorded miracle is actually the cleansing of a leper. Here in Mark, and in Luke, by the way, it is the exorcism of a demon or an unclean spirit. And in John, of course, it is converting water into wine. All animated by the Holy Spirit, the four evangelists also undoubtedly had different perspectives, memories, and recollections, and perhaps even different sources. Nevertheless, it is instructive that in two of the four gospel accounts, Jesus' first miracle is an exorcism. We postmoderns tend to shy away from such an embarrassing fact, chalking it up to the primitive understanding of antiquity that is, to the ancients who lacked the benefit of current scientific methods. And so we relegate such things now to the province of really scary horror movies. And yet, not only is it Jesus' first miracle in 50% of the Gospels, not only, in fact, does he spend a good bit of his time performing such exorcisms, casting out evil spirits. Indeed, demons are mentioned four times in the following ten verses alone. But when he appoints all 12 of his disciples in the very next chapter, he commissions them to only two tasks, to preach the gospel and to have authority to cast out demons. Perhaps we can have conversation about what constitutes an unclean spirit or how we are to understand that concept, but to totally dismiss it in its entirety because we are too sophisticated seems rather negligent, and perhaps even dangerous to me. They went to Capernaum, verse number 21 opens up. Capernaum being a small fishing village on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, the home of Peter and Andrew, and soon the headquarters or home base of most of Jesus' ministry. And when the Sabbath came, the verse continues, he entered the synagogue and taught. The Sabbath, of course, was the Lord's Day the hallowed and holy day of the week, and for Jews, ancient and modern, the seventh day of the week, namely Saturday, based on the creation accounts of the Bible's opening chapters. While retaining the concept of a Sabbath day, by the way, early Christianity transferred it to Sunday, the first day of the week, because that was the day of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Regardless, the Sabbath is and was a day of worship and a day of rest. Jesus would go on to get in much trouble and controversy with the religious leadership of his own Jewish people for seemingly playing footloose and fancy-free with the Sabbath and routinely breaking the prohibition against work on such a holy day. Jesus, of course, in our Christian understanding, seems to only do so when love demands it, when healing necessitates it. And he seems to be opposed to, if anything, a slavish and overly legalistic adherence to the fourth commandment. He himself, after all, can be found many times in Scripture in the synagogue on the Sabbath day for worship. Apparently, Jesus' teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath day was profound, resonant, impactful, because the people were transfixed. Verse 22 relays, They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them, as one having authority and not as the scribes. They were not just impressed, in other words, but actually astounded. Not at his actions or at his miracles, but at his teaching, his words. Not his, at his articulation or elegance, apparently, but rather at his authority. Since the scribes were those trained in Scripture... God's word, God's law, it is quite an indictment on them indeed that Jesus teaches here with authority and not as the scribes. So the first irony we see is that those who are supposed to have authority do not, while the one who isn't does. It is a shocking role reversal, the likes of which are scattered all over the Gospels and totally suffuse Jesus' teachings and actions The trained leaders of God's law here describes somehow lack authority that a manual laborer, in this case a carpenter or perhaps a stonemason, possesses. So what does that say about authority, my friends? About who possesses it and how? To whom God chooses to give it and in what manner it is conveyed? Apparently, at least within this text, it is something that you can feel, sense, and perceive. It seems to be apparent here. The second thing we notice is the context of teaching itself. Jesus is teaching in verse 22. The resultant exorcism occurs in verses 23 to 26. And finally, the crowd is amazed in verse 27 at Jesus' teaching, exclaiming, what is this, a new teaching? teaching. The result, in other words, may be an exorcism, but the context is teaching. The outcome might be a miracle, but the surrounding terrain is teaching. The consequence may be a deliverance or a healing, but the fertile soil out of which it grows is teaching. We don't talk much about that. We don't reflect much on that. Because oftentimes teaching is not flashy. We consider it not exciting, not fun. It's plain, we think, dry, boring. Just compare any church's worship service to its Sunday school or Bible study. No matter who you are, where you're located, in what denomination you find yourself, you draw only the smallest fraction of people to a teaching event that you do to a worship and praise service or even a special fellowship event for that matter do you know why because we are not naturally drawn because we are naturally drawn to emotion not intellect to feel better not to think more deeply to fireworks rather than the still small voice of contemplation And so we forget that Jesus was as much a teacher as he was a preacher or a miracle worker. And indeed, in this text, there is an organic connection among those three things. Preaching, teaching, and healing. Jesus is teaching when this exorcism happens. He is teaching when the hit dog of demonic oppression begins to cry, Ouch! He is employing the persuasive powers of reason and rationality when unclean spirits began percolating, why don't you just leave us well enough alone? Insofar as we want miracles without the teaching, deliverance or healing without the spiritual, scriptural, doctrinal, theological equipping, we want ice cream without fruit and vegetables, soda and candy without milk and meat. But the bookends of this text, my friends, of authoritative teaching remind us that we ought not disparage, disdain, nor denigrate the fertile soil of Christian education of the mind. And the subsequent deepening of faith out of which arises our deliverance, our healing, our miracle. Just then, verse 23 states, just then... There was, in their synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit. Don't ever think, my friends, that unclean spirits are only in bars or nightclubs or crack houses or strip joints or prisons or any other such stereotypical place. There are unclean spirits in church. On the Lord's day, gathered for worship, according to this text. Spirits who stir up strife and contention. Racism is an unclean spirit. Fundamental opposition to LGBTQ people simply for who they are is an unclean spirit. Sexism and ageism are unclean spirits. And they are all in the church. Hurt hearts, injured spirits, which hold on to pain and grudges and which assign malice to others when there is none are unclean spirits and they are in the church. Please notice that this is a man with an unclean spirit. The man is not synonymous with, interchangeable with the unclean spirit. They are not one and the same. Rather, he is indwelt with or possessed by the unclean spirit. The man himself is not evil or destructive, in other words. But the spirit in him is. The spirit in him cries out in verse 24. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Interesting, isn't it? The first confession of who Jesus is on this earth from the first written of the gospels is from a demon, an unclean spirit. It is one of the chief ironies of the four gospels that the enemy always recognizes Jesus as the Christ, even when humanity, his own disciples do not. It's another one of those role reversals that of the way we expect things to be. Many of us spend the majority of our lives trying to decide if this Jesus is really, truly the Son of God. While the forces of evil never need convincing, they know who he is. If no one else in that synagogue knew who Jesus was, that unclean spirit in that man did. The book of James in the New Testament famously reveals, do you believe that God is one? you do well, yet even the demons believe and shudder. Jesus rebukes this unclean spirit in verse 25, be silent and come out of him. Is Jesus' word effective? Yes. And the unclean spirit convulsing him And crying with a loud voice came out of him. Other translations say it shook him or it threw him into spasms on its way out. There is but one universal reaction on the part of this worshiping assembly. They were all amazed, verse 27 reports. And they kept asking each other, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. So, because of Jesus' authoritative teaching, demons are revealed and cast out and human beings were cleansed, renewed, and restored. And because of that, word began to spread Even at this nascent beginning point in his ministry, verse 28 concludes, at once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. One biblical commentator brings an incisive perspective to this passage. And I quote, In noting the crowd's reaction to Jesus' teaching in both bookends of verses 22 and 27, where they are astounded in one and amazed in the other, some translations say astonished. The word astonished compels the question, are we sufficiently astonished at Jesus' teaching? Or has it become so familiar, have we taken it so much for granted, that we no longer really see it in amazement? The reason we do not astonish the world more as Christians Maybe that we are not sufficiently astonished ourselves. If we were more astonished, perhaps we could do more astonishing things. Are you astonished in worship? Are you astonished by the word of God and the sacraments of baptism and communion? Are you astonished that when you confess and repent of your sins, you are actually really forgiven them? That when you pray in Jesus' name, God hears? That when you sing, God is pleased? That when you eat the bread and drink the wine, it is the very body and blood of Christ? Or has it all become so familiar that we take it for granted? For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. Since all have sinned and fallen short. They are all alike now justified by his grace as a gift. There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. I have come that you might have life. And have it more abundantly. You see, I think someone in here this morning or out there this morning is hurt and confused and suffering silently. I think someone in here is known by God, claimed as God's own child in baptism, is confirmed in the faith, hears God's word, receives communion weekly, and worships regularly. And yet you are confused. You are confused because you are in pain. You are in pain because you are struggling and wrestling in a matter of life and death and you feel as if you are losing the battle. You feel that you are losing the battle because your life is being convulsed and you are crying out in torment in a loud voice. You are hurt, you are scared because your whole being, your whole way of life, everything you care about is being convulsed and shaken and in spasms. The pain of which causes you to cry out in a loud voice. But in this text, in this text, all of that is but a cleansing. All of that is but a restoration. All of that is but an exorcism or a casting out of something that is not you, but which has infiltrated you, something inside you which is not of God and which therefore God is calling out of you that you might be healed and whole and made well. If you are being convulsed or shaken right now in your life, my friends, it might be because a new birth is occurring, a new day is dawning, a new reality is on the way. Perhaps sickness is on the way out and health on the way in. Perhaps loneliness is on the way out and companionship on the way in. Heartbreak and heartache are on the way out. Comfort and consolation are quickly approaching. Oh, that today here in this house, the spirit of Jesus might be manifest in an authoritative and an astonishing fashion. Just like it was in that Capernaum synagogue of old. Different time, place, and house, but same God, Lord, and Spirit. In Jesus' name, we cast out anxiety and invoke peace. In Jesus' name, we cast out confusion and invoke clarity. Cast out anger and bitterness and resentment and invoke joy, kindness, and compassion. Cast out doubt and despair and invoke faith and hope. Cast out old wounds of grudges dating back years and invoke peace with those you feel have wronged you. We not only bury the hatchet this morning, but we proclaim it now to actually be a plowshare or a pruning hook. We are dying to sin and rising to new life. Dying to self and rising for others. And maybe, just maybe, you're shaking because you're astonished. You're convulsed because the ground is shifting beneath your feet. And it's all happening in church, on the Sabbath, on the Lord's Day, as a result of God's Word and the sacraments of baptism and communion, which is all very authoritative because we have an authoritative God. What is this? A new teaching with authority. Jesus commands even the unclean spirits and they obey Him. I don't know about you, my friends, but our God and His kingdom and His gospel are far from tame and sedate. Far from ordinary, mundane, ho-hum-humdrum. They are nothing if not astonishing. If you agree, won't you say amen? I can't hear you. And one more time for the Holy Ghost. Astonishing teaching. Astonishing teaching. Amen.